Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. Hey, pal. What's your vibe? Need silicon inspiration? Hell yeah, mate. Get them both my standard utteration. Good. Now I would say hop those feet through Glasgow's no-goes to Parney Street, but living as we do in the age of the virus, between us, I'd stick in your houses and click on your mouse thus, because only a fool says there's a rule that you can't buy talent. That's well half kilter. You play the guitar? Well, I play the filter. Gonna add to cart so the noise can start. This module sounds like stars coming apart, like a rip in the fabric of time and space. It's that one in that video that guy said was ace. These modules are odd fuel for music creation. I think they're taking the piss giving them names like this. Do you want to buy a mum, mate? Thanks, I've got one. And her first name is Kate. But names aside, I rate the recommendations, even though radio music doesn't tune to radio stations. Though they also retail haggis, and no, I'm not taking a piss, I will say this. Their taste is the bomb. What's their name again? It's Signalsounds.com. Welcome to Why We Bleep. This is a podcast about talking to electronic music people and, of course, equipment makers. And with that in mind, I am extremely proud to present a conversation with none other than Limit to Your Lovin', Friends That Break Your Heart In, Sultry, Big Voice, Sub Bass, Post Dubsteppin', James Blake. Don't even worry about it. James Blake is an electronic musician. He's a music producer and a songwriter chap. He's originally from Enfield in London, but is latterly a resident of Los Angeles, where, admittedly, it rains a bit less. He's dead good at piano, he sings real nice, and he's really good at making sick beats on his laptop. And he also won a Mercury Award and a Grammy. I think I definitely first took notice of James's tunes with his cover of Feist's Limit to Your Love that is a track that is sensational for testing speakers because it's just like all voice and all sub. <laughs> the day I got a Genelec 7050 subwoofer, I put it on in my house in Whitechapel and when the bass came in, I literally had to dive and smash the space bar because I thought that it was going to make the window panes explode. Not something that you can say about a great many sort of love songs, I don't think, in production terms. But that's just the kind of jab that James Blake is. Now, in case you're new here, I make videos about things called modular synthesizers, which is sort of like horribly expensive Lego for musicians, which is sort of like a tax that sooner or later most electronic-leaning musicians will find themselves considering annihilating what kind of meagre savings remain after their Spotify checks over. It's somewhere between both building the ultimate instrument that is also the ultimate distraction. And I had a surreal experience a few years ago where I noticed that I had been tweeted by James Blake... <laughs> 
and he shared one of my videos to his multitudinous followers. Um, and so I got in touch with him and I discovered very quickly that James Blake is a modular synth nerd. In fact, James Blake is just a music-making nerd, of course. He is a complete fellow music-making nerd and all-round sound chap. In fact, I even ended up spending a very, very fun day in the studio in London with a couple of modular cases. I bought a load of stuff. I remember the star of the show was Rainmaker. What an unbelievably brilliant thing for just twisting things in interesting ways. We spent a day batting about ideas in the studio with James and the wonderful Rob McAndrews, who is also known as Airhead, who plays live with James. Rob is a wonderful chap and he's also a colossal modular nerd. <laughs> We're all bloody modular nerds. The whole industry is filled with them. Anyway, James has a new album out, Friends That Break Your Heart. And so it comes to be that he kindly agreed to do a podcast. And in this chat, we talk about his origins. We talk about his writing process in detail. We talk about dealing with reviewers and reviews. We talk inevitably about Aphex Twin, because that's someone that he has a deep appreciation for too, about streaming, modular innovations of his live rig. We talk a little bit about gear, but to be honest, we talk a lot more about just making music when the world is watching. Not an easy thing to do. James's music is undeniably electronic, but I think he retains the human soul in pitch and time. It's steeped in emotion. It's the opposite. Of robotic despite being electronic. He is a master of silence. He works hard to write earworms. Re-listening to his music as I was kind of researching the questions for this podcast meant I just was like for weeks just infested with the earworms of his tunes. Little bits from his tunes repeating endlessly and endlessly in my head all morning rattling around as I'm sure they have in yours too. He's very good at that. Annoyingly good. And so it was interesting to pick his brains about it. But above all, I can say that James Blake is just a music-making nerd. So, without further ado, let's chat shit with James Blake. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, fucking hell. Looks like you've got a good space. This is, is this your home studio writing boudoir? Yes, it is. What is your sort of setup? What are we... Um, My setup is basically, well, I've got, this is a Pro 3. Can you see what's, we've just, I've just got it wired up, essentially. Um, They haven't come and like fit the the sort of tie line plates or whatever they call them. Uh, you know, it's like there's stuff going through the walls and back back round to to make sure there's not like leads everywhere. We moved house and uh, I have built a studio in, in it. But I had a guy called Jacques who built um, Shangri-La and I had him come and just build me a little room. So I've got this big shovel, this kind of acoustic shovel just above me. <laughs> Um, which creates this, it creates this acoustic space, which when, I mean, when you put it in, the whole, the sound of the room, it was like, 
it went from a cavernous or not even cavernous but you know like a sort of clangy kind of you know this you know the, the sound of a, a small room with zing. waves bouncing around Spang, it. A zing to it. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. um to something very kind of uh not dead but sounded sounded really nice um quite tight just from putting this fucking shovel and, and this cloud back, uh, but it's a shovel it's not a cloud i know they put in like when you go into the albert hall they've got like mm. big orbs ufos right yeah so this is more of a geometric sort of um situation sounds amazing it's like a half diffuser as well as yes yeah and, and also just creates a it sort of creates like um because my room is a strange shape like over there there's like a, a kind of a Imagine a square, but then there's just a little bit attached to it, mm. um, which used to be a bathroom. So I knocked through the bathroom um, and turned it into a uh, sort of modular slash synth wall. Oh, that sounds um, great. I thought you were going to say vocal booth, but your answer is much better. I don't really do but, uh, vocals in a booth. I just do them in a in the room. Like I'll do them like this. Yeah. Yeah, basically. I mean, it sounds sound decent in there. What is yeah, your... it sounds good. And, you know, if it's got acoustic treatment around the room, you've basically got a vocal booth anyway. Mm. Yeah, it's not like you're in a room with a guitarist or something. Right, and a, and a band and, you know, or just a, the, the wrong sounding room, you know. It's like a lot of control rooms are, are mostly, you know, reflective equipment and shiny wooden floors. and like, They're not really set up to, you know, to track. Mm. Um, but this room's kind of set up for both, which is nice. What is your sort of... Like, I don't know exactly how to put this, but like, you've obviously made music for a long time. What have you then gravitated to as a studio? Like, what is your sort of mm. final configuration? So, presumably, if you own this house, maybe then it, you're always yeah. thinking, like, what is the you start to think, dream? Yeah. And what is the dream? Well, I think the the type of brain that's attracted to production itself and, and, you know, modular gear and gear, you know, like synths and all that is the kind of brain that fantasizes about a perfect studio. Um, it's the OCD that is going, okay, but it's not perfect quite yet. But actually a few months ago I was staying with a friend and they have this amazing house on the East coast of England. Um, and it was a huge sprawling place. It, you know, they had like a lot of, you know, they they had lots of different areas and lots of, and and they'd and they'd curated it really well. There's you know, it's like places for the kids, places for the you know adults to have a sort of like barbecuey bit and whatever. And it was just really nicely designed, um, not like designy, but just it felt it just felt like a really beautiful family home. And I and I said to them, you know what when when you when do you think you'll be done with this because there were a lot of things still being finished and she said oh you know it's it's a, a home is never done and and the moment it's done it's dead um and that resonated with me because so many things that i've tried to finish you know like a modular setup or a uh, you know, a synth collection or a, you know, a mic chain and a, and a bunch of whatever it is, um, a studio room. It's like it's never finished. And the moment it is finished, you'll probably feel kind of uninspired 
by it. It should always feel like it's organically evolving and, and your interests are always being fed back into it, I think. Do you then also feel that it's supposed to be this idea that you're meant to like master the instrument and by extension the room as well? I don't know, because I totally agree with you and I'm literally, I know exactly what you mean. And I also mm-hmm. have that thing though that, especially like with modular synths, you're like, well, it's mm-hmm. the dream is it becomes this actual instrument that you actually master at some point. Do right. you know what I mean? I suppose yeah, I do. it depends what the question is, like what excites you and whether it's the, the sense of if you've mastered something that you can always, um, you know, go to it and discover things like you must have that with the piano. But then you also, it's that sense of wanting to be challenged. I don't know where the balance is. I I just think there is no perfect balance. And I think that if you're learning an instrument, you know, the, the, uh, the journey's more fun than the destination, isn't it? Um, and I think when it comes to, I mean, that really applies to most things. I think the constant up re upheaval of your studio is, is part of the fun and getting new gear and trying it. Like I just bought an MPC live too, because I've been using Geist, you know, F expansion mm. Geist. I've been using that for about 10 years probably. And it's great. I mean, I still managed to, I even got in touch with the company to show me how to install it on M1 Max because, or, or like, you know, into the new, newer version of uh, OS 10 because it's not supported anymore. And you have to like go through, you have to jump through some hoops. You got to like do some clever Mac OS 10 shit to actually <laughs> install it on a new computer. So I'm, I'm realizing that eventually I'm probably going to have to move on from using that as a drum sequencer. But I, and I'm just trying things out. Nothing's come close yet to being as, you know, like to being as fluid as the workflow I have with that particular thing. I remember hearing that Burial used Soundforge and, you know, all the people that use Fruity Loops from back in the day who still use Fruity Loops. I mean, mm. Fruity Loops has, has come on quite a lot as a program, but there was a time when it what it hadn't come along, for, you know, for a long time and people were still using it. Um, so it was and I always that. wondered why, and it's like, it's just a process thing, isn't it? So I just bought this thing and... Um, you know, I'm not fully au fait with it yet, but the CV and gate out made me think, well, now I've got this thing where I can actually just, I can just look at that rather than a screen and then I can design drums around a modular sequence and and then I can play my synths and and, and then I, don't, I just don't have to think about, I don't want to be staring at a, a loop going round and round on a screen. It just, the, I just, it, any way I can get away from the screen. So, you know, it's like that, might work for a while. I mean, I'll probably make a few bits on that, and then, and then I'll be like, oh, actually, the software isn't that great, and I'll move on because it because at the moment it does feel a little bit limiting. Is that a thing um, of also going stale with things like, <clears throat> like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it hasn't changed. Like the parameters that your people are using to modulate drums haven't changed. So, you know, like what is there more than Velocity, pitch, repeats, no mm. repeat. Um, you know, uh, shifting on on a on a grid so you can get the groove slightly different. Filter frequency of the drum. There's maybe a few more that I'm not saying, but it's like Geist had all of those ten years ago, and I haven't seen a sequencer come out that's really done a lot more than that. Um, 
And so once you get good with one, you just go, well, that's that's all I really need. And they all pretty much do the same thing. The only difference with the NPC is that I'm going to play in drums and I'm going to leave them unquantized or I'm going to half quantize them, which I would never do in Geist. So that's really the only reason I got it um, was just for the human playability and to make sort of slightly wonkier beats, like shit that just feels like it's like falling over itself mm. or you know, tripping on itself because you can do that in a way that's much more natural than that. Yeah, that feels like the domain of you need a physical interface to play it. Although I, mm-hmm. I hear like Aphex, and we always come back to him, but like I get the sense that he's programming, upsettingly, he's programming feel to the degree that he is, which yeah. on a XOX style grid, certainly on things like the Circlon, which mm-hmm. he... The, the level of feel that he's able to program is something I've never been able to understand or achieve. And so it's interesting to hear you say that you like, but it sounds like you were kind of doing that in Geist, you just weren't, but you prefer to play it. Like it's, it's easier. That I way. don't know if I prefer to play it. I just think it's something that I'd like to try because it would switch it up for me and it would, and I'm, I think I, every now and again, I, I, I get a bit bored of programming beats that way and, and, but I think with Aphex, it's like, you know, there's plenty of ways to get groove outside of just moving drums around. I mean, you know, the timing you play a synth against the drums can make the drums feel like they're a different groove. So, you know, if it's like groove is an interesting one. It's like Berlin, some Berlin techno is completely grooveless. You know, there's no swing per se but you create the swing in your own head. Mm. It's something that your body does for, for you. It doesn't, you know, it's like sometimes you can have completely straight drums and they can feel like they've got the most swing ever because you're you're naturally filling in the, the snap to that. Those kicks and snares could be totally straight, but everything else is just like r- rotating around it like it's the sun. And you end up with on a micro level, those tiny little percussion, uh, those drifts that are happening can make something feel like it's got groove, but it it sort of technically doesn't. Mm. I know what you mean. I love the, also when you're listening to like a little synthy line and then the beat comes in and totally changes the downbeat as well. It's like another one of those wonderful things. I love that. That's one of my favourite things about like breakdowns and and intros and stuff like that is that you can wrong foot people. Yeah, in a good um, way. As long as it's not being mixed. Um, but hey, What's sometimes the, even when it's being also mixed. have that when you sometimes listen to a synth line and the way, I mean, this is a little bit of a stoner thought, but it's like, I definitely mm-hmm. have had this when you're listening to the line and the way you think about it can change it, almost like an auditory yeah. illusion. Um, yeah. It's like the um, ba, ba, da, da sort of, there's like a visual illusion where someone, you someone's saying the same, you're actually hearing the same sound, but by seeing yeah. their lips form a different shape, it changes mm-hmm. how you hear it. Joy Orbison, or Joy O, is very good at that in that intro slash breakdown that confuses you slightly and then comes in with an incredible counterpoint to it, you know? Like when the drums come in, you're you're like, oh, that's that's what the phrasing was. And then you're in. I don't I'm not really sure if I didn't have a history of making dance music if I would care. But I it must have some effect on us. 
you know on a on a natural instinctive level that that kind of thing of like oh I thought that was there but actually it's here and and actually that sounds even better than what I thought what I thought something that happens to me in the studio sometimes it happens like once a year but I'll be working with an artist I'll write a synth line or something and we'll be building on that we'll be writing to it and then we get to writing and they're like Oh, can you uh, give me a four bar count? You know, four beat count into the engineer or, or me if I'm recording, and um, and I'll go, yeah, okay, here we go. So one, two, three, four, and then the synth starts or the piano starts, and they're like, oh, what was that? That's no, because the one is where's the one? And I'd be like, that's the one, and they'd be like, no, the one is, and it's like they think beat one is beat three, and then I've basically got to like, because to me that that is how the song sounds now. We've been listening to it for three hours straight. They've been writing to it. And I've got this acute demo-itis for this one synth line. Oh, I can't no. do anything about it. I basically have to, because I'm producing, I either have to say, I either have to, you know, convince them that it sounds better like this, or I just have to go with it because it's their music. And that is just... <laughs> the, I fucking hate that moment. <laughs> it's happened to me probably about six times in the last few years. Uh, it's happened with big artists who I didn't want to have to argue with. You know, I didn't want to be like, no, because it sounds shit like that. <laughs> but, well, you know, but hang on. to my it, Why ears. don't you just record it and then just like, you know, later just lop off a beat from the start or whatever? Or, well, they'll always hear it their way. You can they'll hear always it. hear it their way and, and they'll always hear, hear the way. beat in, a wrong, in the wrong place. It could be the way they internalise rhythm or the way they hear a melody and, and that's just from their influences and whatever. And you have to, you just have to agree to disagree. Um, and then it I, it has ruined songs before. Like it's it stopped them dead in their tracks because we can't get past it. It's quite funny, but... No, it's funny. I like how people like misinterpret things though. Uh, I'm thinking of mm-hmm. uh, my friend Tanya who uh, misheard the lyric as, I'm on a speedboat, somebody's watching me. Um, you know, I always feel song? like somebody's watching oh, me. Oh, yeah. I'm on a speedboat, <laughs> somebody's watching me, which is sort I've of... I've got tons of those. Yeah, exactly, which is sort of... People get my lyrics wrong all the time because because they get transcribed. Like, before I get a chance to get, my, get the official party version out, they... They get transcribed and, and then people start just parroting the genius or whatever and, and um you know so I mean the, the biggest culprit is um <clears throat> is it the darkness or the dawn in retrograde? And is it is it, it's is it uh Uh oh <laughs> it's it's the starkness of the dawn is is the oh, it's the starkness and of the dawn. It's the starkness of the dawn. I mean I thought I was clear but it you know is it I the mean, darkness or the dawn? I mean, it's not the worst. It, I wouldn't. It's not like a malapropism, but it is not, not the lyric. It's not the lyric, is it? <laughs> There's I mean, just so uh, many like that in my career. It's difficult. I mean, it's music is in the eye of the beholder, as it were. I was um, was reading some reviews. I read some reviews of your music. I'm not going to comment on the reviews, but I was only going to ask about. Oh, you can. I've probably read them all. Do you read the reviews? I ha- I've read most reviews yeah. that have come out, yeah, and of does, most of my music. What 
do you why 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 do you that's not a stupid question i suppose but no i mean it's because what um what do you think when you read reviews i like to compare the opinions of fans and review it it's just interesting to me what what reviewers say versus what fans say i remember my dad told me this story of a of a band in the in the seventies who got these hideous reviews for their records, and the queues for their gigs were around the block, um, and it just stuck with me. And and kind of you know I've never taken reviews to heart if they didn't contain some useful nugget of information, right? So I think the the real killer of fear is information. Okay, so if I'm afraid about releasing an album or or what people are going to think of it, it helps me to know what they like, why they like it, and what they think I did that they you know, that was not wrong per se because it's subjective, but what they didn't like about the last record. And it's it's I'm not writing music for other people. And I, you know, in some ways, I would probably be even a stronger writer if I didn't do that. Maybe. But I think it helps me know how to wrong foot people too. It helps me understand what the next move is and what won't be an expected move. Mm. It's like, you know, it's, they're not exactly my opponent, but it's like... No, your enemy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Because I because I, I don't consider critics to be exactly my friends. There's a strange relationship that you know, you know musicians have with critics and writers have with critics. But sometimes they they are bang on, and sometimes they say something about one of my tunes, and I'm like, "Fuck, you got me." That wasn't the best I could do, and, yeah. I, and I knew it at the time. And I, and I and I you know and and that's okay. Like I think we should always be a little bit, you know removed from our music a little bit just at a certain point you know and once once the music's out i'm kind of removed from it anyway mm, that's good because it isn't you obviously it's just stuff you wrote it's that's the thing i, re- I realized a long time ago that helped me do that it helped me look at reviews without without feeling pain mm. yeah. yeah and it is like it is surely a learning pr- process i mean like the idea that you've no one should ever feel like they sit down to write a masterpiece because that's just weird. No one thinks yeah, that. Is, yeah. That's not how things are written. You just write things. I mean, um, mm-hmm. but it is a bit odd. I just find the concept of reviewing music, what's the quote? That, uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's amazing. It's just the very idea of a website that puts a score, like, you know, yeah. 8.9 is sort mm. of, that is weird. That is, it is weird, weird because I, I thought about that and I don't know if that wasn't necessarily the score for your album, but it was just it's an arbitrary score that a website may assign. No, it was, but, a, it was probably close to the average score for my last record. <laughs> I mean, that, that is a good score on that website. But, <laughs> no, no, it's a, I'm, I'm um, being, I'm the, being, I'm being yeah, faux no. arrogant. Um, but the, but yeah. I suppose it's just this very... <clears throat> I do think it's really weird that a website assigns a score to an album. I, don't, I mean, I suppose I'm not talking just about a site, but just this idea in general. I find it odd, mm-hmm. and I find it 
weirdly inappropriate for music because it, especially also thanks to streaming, it's not like you're not out of pocket by streaming something on Spotify, for fuck's sake. I mean, it's just literally, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? And so I just find that. Well, would you review if, if a, if a, you know, if a kid came to you saying, you know, this, this is how I feel about the world. This is, I feel sad at the moment. And, uh, these are the reasons I feel sad. And I think it traces back to this and, and, and I'm frustrated about this. At the end of it, do you hold a scorecard up that says 8.6? <laughs> you know what I mean? So your emotional expression was, um, was adequate, but mm. I think you can do better. Yeah. Um, I've heard you do better in the past. So yeah, you did better when you were, when you were 14, actually. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'd say they were the golden years. Oh. Um, since then, it's just been downhill. You just, it's just like you got self conscious. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a parent now, so I'll try that on a little Frank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's character building, right? Yeah, right. Mm. Just uh, grade their, grade their emotional expression. I mean, that, that is essentially what it is, though, really, because musicians are like, we're like sort of big kids saying how we feel and putting, putting it to, to tape. I mean, it's not, it's not complicated, really. The, it's a, there's a direct correlation between our emotion and what we choose to do with it. And that is essentially what reviewing is doing. It's, it's saying your emotional expression here... Was shit. Was shit. <laughs> you didn't express <laughs> and, yourself And here well. it was fantastic. Remember that? You mm. know, so there, there's, it can be like that. And sometimes it can be... Very rarely does a great record get reviewed really well when it comes out in my opinion, like a truly astonishing record, usually um, are not on the end of year lists. There's a lot of very good records that are, for example, on the, on the end of year list now, but like era-changing records, you know, ones that we look back on in, in five, 10 years' time, 20 years' time, and say that is when this started to happen because it was so revolutionary. They don't really get the end of year lists. Funny that, isn't it? It's a bit like... Uh... Oscar Best Picture, you know, you are at yeah. the house, it's late, You're like, let's watch a film. Like, yeah. what you don't put on is the <laughs> Best Picture winner from that's 1979. Right. That's very true. Whatever that was. I mean, it's probably so a really true. good film if I looked it up, but it's not, it's not how people, it's not what people enjoy. It's like the fact yeah. there isn't an Oscar for comedy. And yet, right. comedy is what will, people will gravitate. People watch, you know, When Harry Met Sally, still. Yeah. You know, I remember yeah. we watched that like Christmas actually, like two years ago, yeah. and everyone yeah. laughed and everyone had a really good time. And it's just yeah. like, you know, yeah, the amount of times, yeah, somebody's shown me the, an amazing movie, and and I'm like, so was this received well when it came out? And they're like, no, nah, not really. I mean, it didn't win any awards, and like this unbelievable performance, it wasn't really recognised. And you know, sorry, I cut you off. No, but it's just it's true, and I suppose that's the point. It's like if you review music, you don't account for taste and the fact that there's some kids yeah. somewhere for whom that album uh, yeah. can take on huge meaning and be something that they just absolutely like rinse for uh, you know yeah. three straight months and goes into the sort of pantheon of important records it's just i find it odd and so i suppose in, and i suppose it's something that you must contend with because then i suppose the question is when you make albums like what do you do you have like a grand plan? Are you like 
it's got to be big, it's going to be this thing. And it's, or is it like make tracks with a vibe and then see what coalesces? Definitely it's that. Uh, It's the latter. And it usually the reflect the listeners are kind of a reflection of you on the other side of the glass to be honest i mean the amount of time i put into a record is could be about the amount of time that some person you know 200 miles away thousand two thousand miles away ten thousand miles away gets the record and just and just sinks time and and emotion and energy into it or out of it and i think I make my records in the full knowledge that they're going to be listened to multiple times and hopefully will stand the test of time forever. Not, you know, just this album cycle, but that in 10 years' time somebody could listen to a track and go, oh, I didn't notice that about that thing. It's a bit like a a good movie will make you, will be worth a rewatch, you know. And I've always just been a detailed person. Like, I've, I've always looked at things in detail and made things in detail and appreciated the detail in work that I see from other people. And and I just, I think, you know, on the one hand, that can mean that some stuff will, will fly past people because it's not always straight away easily accessible. That's not to say it's too complex for them or, you know, too clever or whatever. That I'm, It's not a, a thing like that. It's more like maybe I dressed it too much. You know, maybe maybe there's too many elements and, and it's not, like, it's not easy to unpack um, unless you're in exactly the right sort of um, listening situation and um, you've got the right headphones. I don't want to fall into the trap of looking at music like how, you know, how many people can I get to listen to this in the sense of it's nice when lots of people listen to something, but the raw connection that you can make when you just focus on making the music right and a proper reflection of how you felt is worth so much more than the cynical this will appeal to people brushstroke everyone has the propensity to do that even me and i don't think you know it's not evil it's just a thought that is it's just a capitalistic tendency that arises from our culture so okay how are we going to not apply that to the thing that we do we've got to strike a balance someone's someone put it to me i was i was kind of um i was i was at a point where i was going i wonder if i can like broaden this broaden this appeal of this thing i do i wonder what it would take to do that could i do that without compromising would it be something that would make me feel bad because every time I try and every time I'm involved in something that I don't like I always pull out of it I don't know what it is I can't tell if it's like perfectionism or just I'm just like averse to that feeling of compromise and they said look it's like if you impact somebody with your track or your song that person could be changed in that moment they could be emotionally relieved they could learn something they could take that into their day and their behavior might change slightly uh they might feel a bit better they might treat somebody a bit better they might pass that energy on and the person who receives that 
may may or may not do the same thing. You have no idea how many people you can impact with one piece of music on one certain you know day if you truly emotionally connect. And so it's kind of infinite. I mean, you might be looking at, okay, so I've had a, a thousand streams for this song, you know, it's like, or a hundred or a million or 10 million. But what you're actually looking at is meaningless because the actual resonance of the thing you made isn't reflected in a statistic in any way, shape or form any more than somebody can slap a score on something. Um, you can only really judge um, the emotional impact of what you're doing or, or the resonance of what you're doing on the way people react to you when you go and play live or, or what people say back to you. You know, it's like those things are really the only thing that matters to me. My wife always associates, um, can't believe the way we flow with being pregnant with our son as well. <laughs> so she gets weepy That's amazing. When, when she hears it. Oh. It's nice. It's sort of the way... It's funny, music and time do, like, unify. Those tunes, they are very emotional, sort of. It is very emotional music. I suppose it's like, do you, what is your process? Like, what, how would you, when do you feel it's right to sit down and write a track? And what is, literally, how would you write a tune? How do mm. you tend to? I've done it in the past in so many different ways. I mean, a good start for me would usually be recording some piano and vocal improvising. You know, sit and, and just kind of hum melodies or, you know, da, 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 with, a, with a lyric maybe in mind or with a lyric that's written on my phone. And I'll sit, you know, let's say, I don't know, like it could be like don't miss it or whatever was the one of the, you know, one of the word, the sort of phrases I'd written down, singing versions of that phrase, but, you know, 25 times in different melodies and mm. with different chords behind it. And then taking those recordings and sitting with a, you know, in logic, just kind of chopping parts out of it, maybe just taking the vocals uh, with the kind of piano bleed through the, through the mic and, and maybe putting that through a pitch shifter, seeing, mm. seeing how I can make it sound. And then eventually being like, Oh, I like that part. Okay. So that's a loop. Let's take that loop and then maybe let's chop a few other things just for like B, C, D sections, whatever. And then starting to make a beat behind it and just see, okay, so the feel of the, this is making the, the feel of the swing of the, the loop, maybe the piano swing or the whatever it is, it's making me feel this way. Okay, maybe this is a halftime beat. This feels like it should be, you know, snare on the one and the three, like, but half time. Um, then it's like, what bass line would accompany those piano chords? Okay, let's try it. And then it's then I've got a section. And then it's like, okay, where does that go? Is there another part of the sample? Does it lead out of the sample? Like, if I were to take the loop I have and I were to extend the audio to see what comes next, does that next thing feel like a part of a song or does it just feel like random? Mm. Usually it feels like, an extension of what happened. So maybe I'll use that. Okay, let's build something underneath that. Maybe it's a different bass line. Maybe it's a new chord progression. Okay, so now we've got two sections. Let's see if taking the drums away feels good in this section. Okay, yeah, cool. The, the drums feel good in this one, but better when they're not involved in this one. Okay, maybe 
in the third section, it's just instrumental, but I bring in a little lead line. Uh, you know, does the lead line need to, what kind of synth do we need for the lead? I'll just, just try a bunch of shit, try go through some presets, see if I've got like anything that's close to what I'm imagining. Uh, okay, this preset sounds pretty cool. Oh, that's an unexpected one. That sounds sick. Okay, stick a filter on that, you know, take some of the frequencies out so it doesn't o- occupy all of the frequencies. Now we've got three sections. One of them is instrumental, one of them's, you know, vocal. The next one is kind of a lead, lead leading out of that vocal thing. Why don't we take the instrumental section and make that an intro? Let's put a slightly different beat under it. Let's, you know, then you've got a, I mean, maybe we're looking at a one, one minute piece of music now. And then very often I get sick of it and I take all the piano away and all the music or I filter the vocals so you can't really hear the piano in the background. And then I'll just play some new chords under it. Um, harmon- reharmonize the whole thing so it feels like it is disconnected from what originally happened. But essentially I'm playing new chords under what had been going around my head as, as, as a song is now something else. Yeah. Sometimes just ripping the, the guts out of it and and just ramming some new guts into it is what uh forgive forgive the expression is what um turns something from being something a little bit pedestrian into being something truly unexpected and the you know uh something with contrast something with a new context i mean and then it's like okay so i've got a bassline a drum line or like some drums a vocal, I like the vocal. Can I make? Can I squeeze some more out of the vocal? Can I compress it a bit more? Can I, do I want to compress the whole thing? The whole like that? Should we make it feel squeezed? Should we try some Eurorack stuff over it and see if there's enough? And sometimes I'll try some Eurorack shit. You know, come up with a melody line on like the Metropolis or something. Uh, end up with you know something that's really nicely modulated and and feeling like alive. And that will replace the other lead line I had. And maybe it'll even replace the bass line I had. And then suddenly it's just like, you know, these these tracks go through so many mutations. Virtually never do I take a track where it's like, you know, when you see, like I've been watching demonstrations of the of the MPC Live 2, right? Mm. It's like right now, so we get our melody line from Splice. Ding 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 and then okay that's cool that's locked in right that's <laughs> like, what <laughs> what do you mean that's locked in and then you know now we now we put down our baseline boom 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 okay cool that's locked in right and now we start adding like hi hats and trap shit and you're like I mean you can music make music like that you can but like it's never going to be the end point for any producer. I don't think any producer is going to sit and make a whole song in one sitting where it's like, where, you know, it's like by numbers like that, you know, because they all just happen to fit together. Like some kind of music maker 2000, like, or like dance EJ fucking, music maker 2000 on the PlayStation. Do you remember dance EJ? It was like, yeah, you, you just what? like everything works together because it's all in the same key and all yeah. the same BPM. Yeah, I mean, I'm not knocking. I, look, listen, I'm not knocking. What I'm knocking is the is the demo. Yeah, I'm not knocking that that 
structure of making music. I'm knocking the demo because the demo is making it seem like that you could ever really make a full piece of music like that, which, I mean, it, Just I, I've like never been able to. Off. But, I mean, it's fair game in a sense. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, no, obviously. It's not the end game. But I like the idea that you're sort of, for you, not even the first thing you put in is the end game, that you're yeah. iterate, you like iterate and iterate and iterate. I suppose that's like... I mean, I definitely can identify with a small part of that, which is like I will often make melody or make a track idea and then later make a new track to the right of it using all the components from the left, yeah. you know, the sounds and the, the, the vocabulary that had been assembled for it because I'm using virtual synths yeah. in that case. Totally. But it's that idea of like your sort of generationally sort of it's like you're sampling yourself and then mm-hmm. resampling and reiterating. It's such an interesting, odd, freewheeling process that can only lead to yeah. a really or, odd sort of organic. Well, I just get sick of my, like, honestly, uh, what, what I was saying earlier wasn't, um, like I said, it wasn't knocking any other producer's process. I've just watched so many people make music I can, and I can tell you that I've never seen someone knock something out like that especially because it always just ends up sounding like some someone else or not you. It's not personalised. That's the problem is mm. that making making music with splice is a really, really interesting tool if you can make if you can take what's on there and do something unique with it for yourself and, and make it you, then that's really great. Um but if you don't try and personalize it then you end up with incredibly generic sounding stuff. And I don't think there's anything worse than generic sounding music. It's mm. it's 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 like adding to the noise. Um I mean you'd say presets are fair game <clears throat> to some degree. Presets are to I've and I by the way, I'm not an authority in what you can and can't do. I think you could try everything and you could you should try the most basic and the most complex things to to get to wherever it is that you want to get to as long as you arrive at the thing you want that's all i'm saying is that it should always be in my opinion um it's only going to be rewarding and and truly like truly satisfying if you just get to what you have in your head or or even just something that represents you you know what um i was going to ask about with structure you were talking about well, I would, like listening to your music, it's kind of always struck by how simple it is. I mean, you were literally mm. saying earlier, like, worry that you put too much stuff in, but it's kind of funny because I'm surprised, <laughs> like, it seems obvious how much you've left out, like, or at least right. I know that that is not a trivial process. Like, it's like Daft Punk, you know, I was re-listening to, you listened to a live 2007, like, live show and just... Just yeah. by how insanely good they were, and that they're mm-hmm. like the best thing about what they do is how much they've taken away, and how yeah. simple it is. And mm-hmm. like your music is definitely like that, like but in the sense that it's you get the sense that you've, I mean, I assume probably had a lot more elements and have the, it's having the maturity to know to leave them out. That's the same with you. I mean, the things you make um, are. You know, I mean, and and this is mostly going on just the da- the videos that you make, um, the YouTube videos that you, you you end up making great pieces of music without. Um, I mean, it's not that you don't mean to; it's just that they're not 
you haven't you, you haven't made them as a production. You, you've mm. made them to demonstrate a, a, a thing. But one thing I found is that every time I'm trying to show people the best shit I make on Eurorack is when I'm saying to someone, here, come on, I'm going to show you about Eurorack. And then I'm like, so you put the oscillator into the thing. And then, by the way, and then look, you can modulate the modulation and you can, look, this, the LFO doesn't have to be static. It can be moving and, and then you can blah, blah, blah. And then I end up with this amazing patch that I would have never yeah. have gone in and and truly granularly gone in and and, um, and designed like that. Uh, if I'd have been sat on my own, I probably would have left it at like, you know, phase one or phase two and ended up with something quite nice recorded it and then moved on um but i feel like you just make such great pieces of music as demos um and clearly to arrive at that thing because you know you're you're doing a jam and then and then i'll i notice your cut and then it's like okay here we're at we're at the the apex of that jam and it will feel like you must have there must have been you know elements you took away and curated to get to that point. I'm not sure if it's you that said this. It might be you that said it. I've watched all your videos so much that, I, I mean, I can basically, if I'm talking, I'm probably about Eurorack. I might even just be regurgitating your words back to you. I remember someone saying that Eurorack is like, you know, people people sort of treat it like modern art in a way of like, well, anyone could do that. You know, like it's just... And the the answer is always, well, you, yeah, but you didn't. Mm. Um, and it, a Eurorack is kind of like curation. I'm pretty sure you did say this. That it's it's more like curation than composition. Uh, it's more like taking the sounds that are coming at you and just like limiting them and yeah. and kind of and just you know um, cutting away the stuff that doesn't feel good or doesn't sound nice and and euphonic and and arriving at this kind of like perfectly perfectly crafted little loop or or jam or whatever and and it's a bit like you know using mpc can be a bit like that it's like one thing i do like about the mpc is the process means that by the time you've you're happy with your loop it's perfect a two bar four bar loop is going to be it's going to be hitting Mm. otherwise otherwise you wouldn't have let it get there Mm. you know if you've been listening to it that much you're just adjusting these Little moments, little moments, little moments, and then eventually you end up with this perfectly crafted diamond. Hopefully, um, or you just end up with a bunch of shit, and you've got to turn it off and and go and like go and go for a walk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually I know exactly what you mean. It's weird, like making YouTube videos of like demos and stuff is sort of. I've said to you before that like the weird thing is that because there's a camera on it, it's like what you were saying about like demoing Iraq. It's like because there's a camera and there's an audience, and I know there'll be people will see this Mm -hmm. it changes what you do and you do make more of an effort in a Mm -hmm. stupid way and i think that that can be a real curse in a way of not being of like just being an artist making music at home that's why i was always impressed with people like afex who were like he was trying his hardest without Mm. being signed and for no one despite nobody being around to watch exactly like he wasn't famous he was just some irritating lying ginger kid and then (laughs) Is his words, by the way, not, not just being me. But like he's, you know, he's writing selected ambient works, and yeah, and you know, for his own amusement, that's just yeah. crackers. But um, yeah, the, well, I mean, it's you get out what you put in, don't you? So yeah, 
it's it's a if you if you're gonna put that amount of time into something then hopefully the the feeling you get out in the moment not when you release it but in the moment is just pure satisfaction that's what i'm looking for too I think he's, um, for him... Not that, as well as Apex Twin did. No, well... <laughs> I'm looking for it. <laughs> we all are, I think. He's like... Yeah. I get the sense that his skill is twofold, is that he can concentrate better than anyone. Yeah. I can. I cannot imagine the concentration yeah. level that he must have to maintain to write the music that he does. And mm-hmm. he also has the joy in it. Mm-hmm. He enjoys the process of writing music more than yeah i think possibly anyone else and, and so, it, he makes it sound like he does too yeah like he he's not um you know one of the things about him is that he's not been public which means he's not apex has probably done the opposite to me for example right so i'm reading all the fucking review you know it's like we've just discussed how i'm reading i've read the reviews i've allowed the spotlight to to be on me and therefore it comes with all of that self-consciousness and I've gone through years of fear and worrying about what people are going to think of something and, and all that kind of stuff before arriving at where I am now which is a much more like free process but it took a long time and and Aphex has just consistently put out brave music uh I mean I, I I'm not comparing the two of us but I'm saying that well, in some way I am, but I'm in musically I'm not. But he's put out music that has not really paid attention to convention yeah. of any kind yeah. for, for, for years and years and years. And I think for that, he deserves all the praise he gets. I mean, well, I saw someone describing like the Collapse EP as him sounding bored. And I was just like, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you... No, very much. Uh, I don't think <laughs> I don't think there's a critic on the planet that is qualified to to assess Apex. Yeah, music. exactly. To like slack, so, to to tell him that he's doing something wrong or that no, it's a six point nine. I'm afraid. Yeah, right. Although there is a there is a dangerous, and I don't know if he feels this, but there's a there's a dangerous thing that happens with you know somebody being deified in the way that Apex has. There's something dangerous to him or to somebody like that, uh, about that, which is that everybody just laps it up, whatever it is. I can see the motivation behind him turning up and DJing and not announcing his his artist name, which I've seen him do plenty of times, just to see if people are going to enjoy the music without knowing it's him. And so he's changed his sound, or he's doing something new, so he knows that people aren't going to instantly recognise it as Aphex Twin. And then he's gone and done a DJ set and and wonder if people really are into this or if it's just that when you put the Aphex logo behind me, everybody and they can't see me anyway, but they but they all just assume and know it's me. So is my myth and legend inf, you know, influencing the way people actually listen to this stuff? And and yeah, it is. So I think it's a good idea to turn up and do that. I thought it was great. Mm. But yeah, I I think people who who get that kind of reverence often find it hard i'm not saying he does but i I think people like that often find it hard to know if what they're doing is truly good or not still because because they don't get any criticism you need a real reality check i mean i suppose you just i think the you know like you know you know in the sense that 
the criticism that stings is always the one that you agree with. So I suppose yeah. in that sense, we're all self-critics and that, mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, I'm sure he is too. Um, I, but bet. I bet. He also said like, uh, my music is my favourite, you know, it's the favourite music. My favourite music that I listen to is my music. I think if, if most like writers and composers were honest, they'd probably say the same thing. Because mm. I think most of us are trying to fill a hole, fill a gap in music that is that we perceive to be there. Yeah, uh, definitely. Trying to make something that we would listen to. I've, there are people, aren't there, who say, like, I don't listen to my own music. I've always found that to be I don't the strangest that. thing to say. Well, I don't listen to it after it's come out, but while I'm making it, I'm mostly listening to my own music. Yeah. Like I've but I've listened to, to the, the last five tracks. Well, yeah, true. I mean, it's not, but it's not just for market research or whatever. It's not just for research to see if I'm gonna how I'm gonna finish it or oh, like oh yeah, maybe there could be a melody line there. It's literally because I enjoy it. Like I put on the last five tracks I've I've written recently um, are mostly what I've been listening to. I mean, I don't listen to it all the time, but I'll you yeah. know every day I'll, I'll put one of them on and and hear something and be like oh. Because it feels like this, you know, what is it that allegory about um, the king wants, a, you know, wants a diamond that nobody's ever seen and they all try and find one from the kingdom. He's like, well, you've seen that one, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Like, and then he, and eventually um, the princess cuts open an apple and shows him the inside of the apple or whatever. It's like, a, I don't know, it's a fucking shape in the middle of the apple and he's like, oh, yeah, no one's ever seen that before. It's quite a weird allegory, but okay. My songs that before anyone's heard them are like my little diamond that no no one's ever seen um and until they come out that's how they stay and then eventually they come out and then i'm like over it (laughs) fucking hell everyone's seen it now (laughs) see my diamond yeah (laughs) i mean that's like letting your babies go out into the world isn't it yeah i mean yeah it's nice surely yeah i mean yeah Review my babies. Review <laughs> six out of ten for my my son. Um, yeah. no, he's a ten out of ten, of course. But Apex has also said that he's like, I'm glad to get this shit out. Fuck all this lot off, you know. Yeah. But it sort of implies like they've been annoying him, like. And I assume that if you, you know, music is hard work. There is also that old chestnut, like, oh, it's music's never finished. It's abandoned, which I yeah. think is true. Uh, I think like, submitted. I mean, I, I, I always said music is never... I, I never finish music, I just, just submit it. Um, abandoning is like, to me... I mean, I don't mean to get, you know, pernickety about this little phrase, but that's how I see it. It's you like haven't it, abandoned it. it. Like, you, you did yeah, you haven't abandoned... When, you, when your kid leaves it. at 18, you know, you're not abandoning them. Mm, like, they right. need to go off and live their own life without without you. And I think songs, eventually, they just... They outstay their welcome and they just need to go and live their lives. Um, and they live lives, you know, similarly to humans. I mean, they live, some of them live for 50, 60 years. So, you know, we want them to live as better, the best lives they can. But That's true, isn't it? It is weird. And there'll be people who, I mean, you have the option of then reinterpreting your songs, I guess, when you play them live. And that's a fact. Yeah. Like that, I like that Daft Punk Alive thing, you know, they've taken... They mash their tunes up, so there's there's a blend part where one tune is a re, you know literally contains the parts of the other, and you get this wonderful half like hybrid tune. So anyway, it's not yeah the point, but I suppose it's no, it's great, and it's, they can do that because they're so like they're so dialed into what they're making. Mm. 
and the, and the technology technologically as well. I think when that show feels very on rails, like, but it fails on rails in a way that is is the best expression of like non live electronic music, where it's like yeah. that actually is like good on rails. That's like it's on rails because they've really cared about every about minute, it. and every minute slams, yeah. and will slam harder into this with just this little. I think there are things they can adjust, but. Um, yeah, what you don't want is like a pre-prepared set that's shit. Yeah, that it's like isn't... just that's the worst. That's I mean, it's really like, bad. well, at least give me if you're going to train wreck mixes, for example, like if you're DJing, at least make it spontaneous. Like, and you're just pulling records out of a bag or whatever. Um, don't give me, you know, something some Ableton set you've spent two hours putting together, and then it's like the mixes are out of key. I the only time I see the point in doing that is if you're going to design a piece of music that just makes sense and flows, you know, like what you would do if you're a radio DJ or whatever. And I think, yeah, that can feel great. It can feel great when somebody's thought about it and the mixes work and the vocals and the bass lines just, like, work together under the next tune and you're just like, oh, like, it's just like a new piece of music, a new experience. That's the... I think that's the best of the best of electronic music feels really sometimes is is when you're is when you're recontextualizing something you thought you knew and then it's coming over the baseline of another tune and you're like ah oh, you know breakdowns work together the drop happens it's like double drops like shit like that when you play live how live is it like you're playing this stuff and like you presumably do you write the tunes is it ever in your mind, like, I've got to perform this thing live or is it always just, like, a fun thing of, like, now I have I can't to do that. work out yeah. how I'm going to perform it live? If I think about the way I'm going to perform a, li- a tune live in the studio, then I start doing things that I shouldn't be doing in the studio, like overthinking and, uh, like, oh, no, I won't use that sound because it's, I wouldn't be able to play it with my hands. It's like, no, that's ridiculous. Just Just do what you're going to do and then try and translate it and yeah it's it's all live uh we don't use any there's no laptops i mean i say there's no laptops because that's the simple when i tell people oh it's completely live there's no laptops they understand that what i mean is there's no syncing because i'm talking to you i can go into it but i've seen a lot of live kind of acts design their set around uh, an ableton rig or, or whatever Sometimes it's necessary because of the type of music it is, maybe. Even when you've got musicians on stage, the the tendency is, well, we need something that's like rock solid that's just going to tie everyone together. Um, and usually Ableton is the is the source of clock and extra stems and shit that you're going to, you know, you don't want to play yourself or you can't. And you've only got three people and you want to like make sure the sound is as big as possible, blah, blah, blah. I just think that the sacrifice of live playability, malleability, being able to, like, do something different if something goes wrong, uh, you know, uh, things being different, you know, things being the same every night, uh, I think the sacrifice is is too much in terms of enjoying playing. And also, like, what's the point in a drummer? I don't think drummers sound very good against metronomes. I think they sound good as the metronome. Mm. 
you know, what sounds good is is obviously subjective. But there's a, f- a couple of universal truths, I think. One is that a drummer tied to a MIDI click ends up sounding like he's accompanying the MIDI click, um, not the other way around. And he ends up being tied uh, in a way that's not really musical because groove, groove actually doesn't, like, feel necessarily human if it's always around this one exact thing. <laughs> if you see what I'm saying, like... His his groove actually almost is delete is essentially made obsolete by the metronome. So his natural instinctive way of playing drum playing drums is is irrelevant now. And so drums who are tied to clicks, drummers who are tied to clicks like that, click tracks, I always feel like they're being taken. They're ba- basically being taken hostage. <laughs> I feel sorry for them. Yeah, um, like they want to be like they want to like. I, I can see when they're playing. I I can almost see them blinking help. Uh, and then the the other elements like stems you, you're not playing confuse the audience. I think I think it makes people go like, what, "What's actually fucking happening here?" Oh, you know what? Never mind. I'm just gonna like check out. They're either completely checked out already from the live performance aspect, in which case they're just enjoying the music, which is also great, or they're trying to figure out what's going on stage because it's a band and they don't understand why a band wouldn't be playing it. And they're going, wait, but that f- sound just happened. What's that sound? Mm. Well, I didn't see anyone play anything. They're all just standing still. What's happening? So that, I wanted to avoid that. I, di- I didn't want to feel, you know, I, I load the next project. Okay, now, you know, this is going to... Whatever the interaction with the laptop is would have been too many computer elements for me to then, like, remember songs and, like, do you know, play as well. Um, doesn't feel very natural. So I just think it it didn't work with the way that I like to play music, um, to, to use MIDI. What we do instead, we did find a, a solution to it, which was because I got into Eurorack, I started understanding, you know, triggers and gates and, and CV, and, and I realised that the Yarns module... Uh, is it Yarns? Yeah, Mutable. Yeah, immutable yarns is it, it can it can take a steady flow of gates and come up with a tempo and spit out a clock. But unlike something like Pamela's, it's a bit more solid when it comes to a variable clock, right? So mm. Pamela's <laughs> is good for taking a clock and spitting out a, a, a static, like one twenty BPM or whatever. You'll get like slight variations, whatever. But yarns is good for taking a clock that's changing slightly because it's a drummer's feel, let's say a 4-4 a, a kick drum, and having a wider range of variability. So like if it's ranging from like, let's say a drummer ranges from 116 BPM to 122 BPM over the course of a track, just in case. Yarns will be able to accommodate for that and, and not just like lose the clock and like stop spitting out information it is very good for that so we send that out then to sequences and and all sorts of shit and what it means is that ben can play at whatever speed he wants he can send one of the pads to yarns or he can send a kick drum to yarns depending on what he wants to do and he can basically 
dictate the tempo of the entire track. We can have Metropolis, we can have uh, Varigate, we can have all these different sequences just spitting out eighth note, like mm. techno or like sequences of like, you know, three sequence length or like five note or like seven note or, you mm. know, those kind of the like... stuff. Yeah. The good shit. Yeah. Like the evolving. <laughs> against the 4-4, four, four, yeah. Yeah. Against the 4-4. Four, four, uh, with like all sorts of filter shit happening. And like, you know, Rob's, Rob also does Eurorack. So he's good with the, you know, he knows how to get it to feel, you know, like uh, evolving and like mutant. You know, that's what you really want in it. Like if you're going to do a bass line for the song Voyeur, then you want it to be knocking. And it's only going to do that if you know how to get. You, you can, like, modulate the envelopes and, you know, on maths and take the, you know, modulate the modulation, essentially. Mm. Um, and then we're using a couple of, a few different oscillators. Like, one is Elements mm. um, for, for a couple of things. And nice. A few, but, what do you do but it's, Elements it's just, doing, yeah. like, like, modal stuff? Yeah. Got Elements doing some FM and modal and just stuff for Voyeur, mostly, when we want, like, a sort of, like, Ben Clock style techno line, you know, or like surgeon-y type shit, then I'll take, I'll go for that. Um, and, and you know, like that, that is one of the most fun parts of the set for me is, is just hearing this modular just spit out, like, and Rob curating these melodies and me like choosing which notes to play alongside that and Ben controlling the tempo of the whole thing. And like, and at the end of Voyeur, Ben goes like from a 4-4 kick he starts slowing down mm. and the whole module is going and it's just like i don't know how the fuck yarns is doing that but it's so steady the way it t- it changes tempo that you could, you're basically making an, an entire a style of music that's never been made before like i mean i've heard people slow stuff down you know, slow the whole BPM of a track down over the course of the thing, but that doesn't usually work within a DJ set, so people don't put it in tracks. No, they don't. But in the live set that we do, there's all these um, dynamic elements that are happening because we're actually outside of the restrictions of DJ tools mm. and and of band dynamics and of laptops. So it's like I feel like we've found ourselves in this genuinely new grounds. Uh, of of music which i'm so my life like our live show is the thing i'm very often the most excited about i find it more exciting than making records sometimes because it's just got that element of like what the fuck's going to happen um there's no limitations whatsoever that's crackers because really it is off rails like yeah it's off rails the james holden's group uh group is it group humanizer have you seen that it's like uh no that is a, a, it's a Max for Live um, mm. patch that Mr. James Holden made, which takes right. the drummer and makes the drummer the master. And it's basically doing what kind of what Jans is doing. That's great. But I think it does it, it, it literally takes the swing as well and it applies the swing to the clock too. So it's like... Wow. It, 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 it literally takes the vibe the drummer is creating so that... So that when he played, I see I saw him play at uh, Festival Number no. Six, and yeah, so you played yeah. at Festival Number no. Six as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think possibly the same year, but um, oh nice. But the he, yeah, he had a live drummer and his modular, and was 
and like and he had, did have a laptop and he had like an yeah. arc you know the wheelie yeah. wheelie mono and then yeah and he was doing amazing stuff but it was the drummer that led it same as that's it, fucking it, brilliant yeah yeah it, well, it can i'm so work. glad because i think that's <laughs> yeah i think it's uh well it's also good to know someone else is doing that i don't know how long he's been doing it but it's really important that we've got you know i mean he Considering he built the fucking Max Patch himself, he's probably been doing it a lot longer than we have. But I'm just glad that's happening because, to me, that's the next phase of what bands will be doing in general. To Off just feel like they're, yeah, just to feel like they're playing. Because what's the difference? I mean, no one even notices that if you've got a stem playing or if you don't have a stem playing or if you've yeah. got, you know, if you're locked in. It's like, really, all that shit is just so that it's for insurance. You know, it's for insurance so that people know that the set's definitely going to work. Mm. But it's like, trust in your musicians, man. Like, hire a better drummer if it's not going to, if it's not working. You know, yeah. it's like, what happened to, what happened to, like, proficiency of the musicians playing, dictating whether a set works or not? It's like, no, nah, let's, let's, let's try and make it actually musical. It's like, you know, I'm all for, I'm a huge proponent of, of electronic shit, of computers, of Ableton, of NPCs, of all these things. But I think they should, you, they should, to me, I get frustrated when they take over and don't add, just mm. remove, they, they sort of almost like form these kind of like stabilizers. Yeah. And it's like, that's not. I think we. I think what's so fascinating about FX Twin is he doesn't use technology as a stabilizer. He doesn't use it to like correct his flaws or th- his inefficiencies. He uses it like he is it. He uses it like he he takes them apart. He takes shit apart and puts it back together in a way that makes it he, work for him. And and you know what's um, electronically controlled acoustic instruments. Yeah. yeah. The, I was going to say, um, when you mentioned before, like, people just lap up Apex. Computer-controlled acoustic I was instruments. Gonna, I literally was about to say to you, I don't know about computer... I would whack on computer-controlled instruments just yeah. as a casual Sunday afternoon listen, maybe. No, I'd have I to mean, be in a pretty oblique, view, like, frame of mind. Yeah, well, I mean, there are some songs on there, there's some tracks on there that, like, especially the piano stuff he's done on there that yeah. are incredibly yeah. listenable and euphonic. But, you know, there's some stuff on there that just sounds like... I mean, it, you know, it sounds like... Um, robots play i mean it is it's robots playing piano and drums um and it's it really does sound like yeah. you know it's like it doesn't sound like human in, in some some ways but it's new i mean i've never heard anything like that before that was the that was brand new when it when it when that happened i was like i when that came out i heard it uh the day it came out and i was like this is this is completely unique there's nothing like it in the world no one's ever done anything like this and no probably no one's going to do anything like this again for at least 10 years um and i was so excited it was like fucking christmas i was just so excited about that record i loved it um, i'm like i haven't really given it the time of day clearly no it's just it's not that it's not even the it's not really the fact that i'm not like playing a tune to my nan at christmas do you know what i mean being like you've got to listen to this it's just i love <laughs> I just love the process of what he did. And I even can get through some of the more challenging elements of it 
because I'm just so fucking happy that it happened and and that he did it. So I just, I'm just like, I'm not really making a point in general other than to say that I stand firmly on the side of using technology to us using technology and not technology using us essentially and and um not being limited by it but but expanded by it in mm. our humanity and our and our expression oh bloody mental that that's a good i've got more questions though i was like oh i should leave it there <laughs> summed it all up and stop making this podcast now uh, what about i mean humanity what about working you work with other people though i was just going to ask you about yeah. that because that is a it's a very like non. Well, this sounds like a stupid thing to say. I was just going to say it's like a very non-electronic music thing in a way, like mm-hmm. it, only in the sense that a lot of electronic music is a solo pursuit, and yeah. so it's and you started that way, like as in you you started making. I don't really know how you started making music. It'd be interesting to mm-hmm. sort of where you came from and then how you go to person who then mm-hmm. produces other artists and also just what what the value for you is in working with other people which sounds like a really weird stupid do you like people um <laughs> uh, yeah but, well but, it, i mean yeah I mean, the value in working with other people is is only in almost only the value you take in being around other people i mean it's i'm an only child who probably spent far too long on her own anyway um once you've spent that long, not only on your own, but making music on your own, I think there's only so many hours you can do it. And then at a certain point, um, you hit uh, peak loneliness and you just go, okay, well, I've got to, I've got to branch out here because this is not only lonely, but also getting less and less creatively interesting. Because you st- would you say we... you get stale or what? Or what? Yeah, you just you like it doesn't matter. You could be the world's consummate biggest genius in the world, and you still have what you know. I said world twice. You've only got a certain amount of ideas for 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 music. I mean, if you want to make music every day, you got to collaborate. If you want to make music once a week uh, or once a you know and do a session a month and like sit and make music once every month, then fine, you can do it on your own. But it's like if you really want to make music a lot and you want to do it for a living, it, it just gets fucking boring um, and lonely and depressing to just only do it on your own. I mean, certainly for me, anyway, I'm, I really speak for myself here, but I, I'm pretty sure that eventually you get uninspired, whoever you are. Um, so, But anyway, yeah, so how I started making music, um, well, I learned piano when I was a kid, my dad said to me, what, you know, starting from the beginning, basically, um, what, you know, would you like to learn an instrument? And I said, yeah, I'd love to learn guitar. And he was like, well, I could teach you that because he plays guitar. I picked something else and I was like, I'll, I'll choose the piano then. Um, he goes, great. So he got me, luckily, luckily he got me piano lessons and I took to it really quickly. How old were you? I was about six or seven. I just started primary school. Mm. So really young. I think he bought me my first sort of key, like little digital keyboard when I was 10 or something. We're talking like um, a PSR, not like a, a DX7. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he got me a DX7. Like and first a, dealer uh, who had an Emacs or whatever he had. No, he had an emulator. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's worth more than the car, mate. Anyway. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> I mean, no, I didn't have anything sophisticated. It was just a 
you know, it was a digital. I mean, it, it was good for the time. It was good for what we could afford, basically. I mean, it was, it was you know... So the way, the way it worked was we didn't have, like, disposable income, but what we'd had was he would be like, what do you want for Christmas? So it'd be like a, I'd get something useful for Christmas. He, he always made it so that the thing I had at Christmas would be something I learnt something from and I would use it well into the year, you know? Like, so it would be like a little keyboard or n- nothing too expensive, but it was like, what? how is this going to help his growth? It was always something practical like that. So this that one year, it was a, it was a keyboard and, and that kind of took me, set me off on, you know, pra- playing every day. I, mean, I might have been eight or nine, playing every day, uh, singing a lot, because I'd already been singing since I was young, you know, he was always playing music in the house. He, he, had a stu- he had a little, you know, very, very small, probably about a third of the size of this, in our attic, he had a studio. And I remember the walls were covered in cork. Uh, and, you know, he'd, like, sort of DIY'd it. And he was using... It was an Atari. Mm. He was using a door on an Atari. Not- it could be Notator, which... Is the Notator Maybe, that yeah. becomes Logic, appropriately enough. Right, yeah, yeah. I think that's why I ended up on Logic, is because yeah. he started on Notator into Logic. I mean, I, I'd have to ask him. But basically, he made his albums on on tape and that. He wasn't signed. He was, he was, he'd been signed in when he was younger, but he'd sort of fallen out of love with the whole record industry and just decided to go his own way. So, you know, my earliest memories are of my dad recording his own album <laughs> at a time when no one was really doing that. I mean, my dad was a real innovator in that way. Like, there was... You know, this is 93. There's not many people doing their own, like recording their entire own acoustic records. Not acoustic records. Um, Certainly people in their house. doing a lot of music with Ataris. In the, Obviously, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for different purposes. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and yeah. With more weed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but like coming in and record, you know, like recording saxophones and do, and like all in your mm. own home studio, which was kind of rare. Um, and so... And, and, you know, no engineer, no, like, he'd wired everything up uh, up himself and he was, you know, doing it. It was mm. remarkable, really. And and I, to, as, a, as a start for me to actually learn some of this stuff. So I knew what MIDI was when I was eight, you know what I mean? And I, I, was, I was hearing records being made when I was really young. So then I play piano and sing well into my, you know, like my late teens. I've learned a little bit about digital stuff like, my dad used digital performer and a bit of logic and he showed me a, a bit of how to use those things, but I never really made anything myself. Um, it was always too intimidating for me. And then around 19, I started going, well, I'd been clubbing since I was about 14, right? So I'd been going to like Herbal and and all these clubs, drum and bass, jungle, all that, since I was about 14, 15. And around 18... Well, I went to Plastic People for the first time and I heard, I think it was Koki playing um, and N-Type and a bunch of people. I think it was a Digital Mystics night. I remember hearing, you know, I remember hearing like Haunted and like all the original dubstep tunes that sort of kicked everything off. This is just after like Horsepower. This would have been 2008, you know, just after the intersection of Garage and, and, and Dub turns into dubstep, basically. I went with a bunch of friends. I wasn't there to, like, investigate this new type of music. My mate just was like, do you want to come to this night? I was at Goldsmiths at this point. I was like, yeah, let's go. And went there, heard this music and was like, I don't know what's going on, but 
something about this is really appealing to me. Like, just, I mean, I always liked drum and bass and jungle, but this hit on a, a, a resonance that I wasn't really ready for. It was a bit like, it appealed to me because Lofa was playing as well. Lofa was playing this kind of like, because I was really always into like R&B and hip hop. and But then the intersection of dubstep and R&B and hip hop was the the halftime beat, right? So it had this like skippy garage element, but it also had this halftime beat that kind of reminded me of slow jams or like, you know, stuff like that. So I was immediately like, oh, this is my tempo. 140 is my tempo. I don't know why, but I just resonated with it. Started like I was always, and we went to that night a lot after that. And I started making stuff on my laptop. I started just becoming obsessed with making shit on my lap, on, a, on a laptop. Downloaded Logic. I was like, you know, my dad had always been trying to get me to do stuff on Logic and I was never interested. And then suddenly I had this, this obsession with doing it. And I must have made, you know, I was learning how to use synths via Massive um, on and, you know, early versions, cracked versions, obviously, of, of plugins because I couldn't afford buying all that shit. Um, but taking uh, an LFO uh, and routing it to a filter cutoff, you know, like the the, the basic stuff that, the that helps you understand the wub. Yeah, trying to, trying to design wobble baselines to figure out, you know, but through trying to design them under, you know, like learning about resampling, learning about, it's like Koki, like Koki's bass lines. I was like, how the fuck does he make that? And somebody would be like, well, he resamples. You're like, what's resampling? And then you go online and you find a YouTube video. Oh, this is how you resample. This is how you create this kind of wobble bass. This is how you create this kind of Reese bass line from drum and bass and blah, blah, blah. And then started applying some of those concepts to my vocals you know, EQ, compression, distortion, delays, all these things, designing delays, figuring out, okay, so if I put the delay on a bus, then I can record just the delay and then I can just fuck with the delay and just see if I can make something else out of that using compression and blah, blah, blah. Uh, separating the effects from the actual source material and turning that into a thing. Maybe that's a lead line. Maybe Like stepping out of the fundamental kind of understanding of music of just like, well, that's a bass line, that's a drum kit, that's a, you know, it's like going, oh no, all of them can basically be any of the other things. So a bass line can be a percussive element, a vocal can be a pad, uh, you know, etc. I think that started to twig and then I was, then I start, you know, I made um, the Klaviwerker EP, I made while I was at university and submitted it for my coursework. And uh, the day the coursework was handed in, I think a couple of days later, the the, the record came out on RNS. Um, so, you know, and I think I got pretty good marks actually. Um, and uh, but it was this like duality between being at home. I was going to this club night, going to my uni classes. Well, sometimes going to my uni classes, mostly just staying at home and. Um, drinking and then going home and and writing these weird bits on my computer and, and like going into the union recording the piano and then coming on like on an ro9 edirol ro9 mm-hmm. dictaphone coming back and like chopping those things up and making this clavierwerk ep then i made cmyk because i got obsessed with these r&b vocals that i could hear floating around the internet people were sending around sample packs and all these you know producers in dance music were starting to use them or they had been using them on from like 
CDs that you got with magazines, but now they were on blogs and you could download them from, you know, whatever, uh, 320, what, you know, like rip websites where somebody had gone in and like actually got the acapella or maybe it was an acapella from the 90s that had come out on the vinyl itself and been left, you know, like the B-side would be an acapella. And so I was just sampling Aaliyah and I was sampling Ashanti, I was sampling like Buster Ryan, all these different people and and taking these vocals and usually just taking a, making a vocal line and then take, make, playing chords underneath them that were different from the original tracks. And that ended up being the process that I called... Uh, it wasn't a moniker, it wasn't a, a pseudonym, it was, it was a style of remix that I was calling a harmonimix, which was essentially taking a song like Amelie by Lil Wayne and taking the beat away, i.e. using the acapella, and putting new chords underneath it when it previously basically just been a bass line and a sample. Now it's these chords with all these different inversions that you wouldn't expect under that vocal, recontextualizing it, reharmonizing it and turning it into something new. That was the harmony mix thing, which I then carried. Sorry, I know this is a long story, mm, but it, yeah, I'm, I'm answering your question comprehensively yeah, right, yeah. because you said, you know, how did you end up working with other people? So I ended up sort of not pioneering, but for myself pioneering. I mean, it's not like people hadn't been putting chords behind vocals <laughs> in the past. This was kind of weird because it was like vocals that would had just become available to us and all these weird like synth sounds underneath them that didn't really fit in any genre. Then I was like, well, I'm only doing this with acapellas at the moment, but I could just do this with my own voice. So, you know, I'm starting to write something. I'm like, I'll just take the piano away and just do what I did on that remix, but on under my own voice and see how that sounds. And then you come out with my first record because that's what that record is, kind of. It's loads of vocals that have been reinterpreted and, you know, whatever. I was like, well, okay, I've done it with my own voice. Why don't I try it with some other people? And and a lot of the collaborative processes that I went, that I, I sort of exacted with other people were an extension of that principle. Somebody's singing and we've got this thing going and then I'll just take the chords away and just do something else. Um, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Majority of the time I get to something that works because I've got so much practice recontextualizing vocals because I've done so many remixes. So It's like that process is just second nature to me now um, to the point where I can come up with something serviceable pretty quick and it's an acquired skill that essentially is the lifeblood of what I do and that really just came from fucking around with, with vocals in, from the 90s. <laughs> That's just the core concept of what has happened for, in a lot of my music. But, you know, that's because I'm so obsessed with chords. You know, if I could have one thing to make music with forever, it wouldn't be a drum machine or a modular synth. It would be a piano. Mm. Um, I'd rather sit with that for the rest of time. It'd be my desert island sort of uh, process. But I think the exciting thing for me is the intersection between all of them and and, you know, learning... Euro rack. I mean, now I'm sitting here looking at this. I've got this big wooden case with like. You've got a new case. What is it? How many HP is that? It's hard to know how to describe. Basically, it's like that, but like 
that tool and i've been it's collecting like it since J, i was one jb it's like a yeah span. it's ridiculous it's, it's big a big hand span it's fucking too much i mean it's too much stuff and and actually it's because i developed so many small cases and then i got this massive case and just put it all in one case and now i'm just completely overwhelmed uh, i don't think by looking you, at it. you can see it that way but i think that you have to see it as like clusters or yes um or like a library, you know. I, I yeah. have a lot of modules. I mean, I sent you a picture of. Sorry. Like, oh yeah. That these are shit. It's very hard. These are three boxes, <laughs> three boxes <laughs> that contain modules, which is somewhat upsetting. But mm-hmm. I think it's a, there's a friend of mine, um, Alex, who I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but basically he. He has synths and he has them on the wall and he has them on shelves and they're not plugged in. But when he wants to write something, on the, in the centre of a room is a keyboard stand right next to mm. his computer. And he just, just goes, takes one. picks it, plonks it down, <clears> record <throat> it, and then put it back. And that whole thing can be extended yeah. to Eurorack as well to a degree. Like That is like a library, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. think that's what's good about those the, the palette cases as well. Well, mm-hmm. I did see there was a, someone left a comment they were talking about, um, someone left like a mean comment about one of my videos and then the guy was like, oh, they were talking about pallet cases and we're like, Tell I think... Tell me who he is, I'll go and find Yeah, exactly, thanks, mate. Um, <laughs> she's saying, I think only pallet, pallet cases only exist for YouTube videos because that's where I, where oh. I see them. And I, well, I recognise what he's saying. I suppose what I'm getting at is this, what's nice mm. about the pallet case is it's your palette to take a couple of things and then work with it and that's you can have a sort of stupid amount of gear but like Aphex you don't use it all at once because he isn't and he's it's interesting when you talk about like the idea of a person you know if you're making music alone forever you eventually become sad and like yeah and and you lose your sort of you need a collaborator but I was thinking well but Aphex Apex. I also it's possible that he does collaborate and we just don't know about the people involved I don't know I, I mean maybe he doesn't uh, I mean but also he doesn't put that much music I mean does he put that much music out no but I think he well he seems to write a great deal of music I was going to say that I think the, yeah. the joke with Apex is that his collaborators I'm trying to find a synth are the synths yeah, right. they're his yeah. mates they're his yeah, mates yeah. and they're his they're his mate, uh, like almost. So it's possible that his mates are just people who he goes down the pub and chats to, and he doesn't actually sit at the, in the studio that much. It's possible that he just lives a a, a pretty rural life, mm. you know, out in the countryside or something, and and just hangs out with his mates and and his wife or whatever. And his kid, I don't know if he's got kids. Or, I, I don't, really know don't know if he does or not. I think it's... I don't know what... I don't know if he's married or... I don't know what to believe from what he's... But the, my, my thing is, like, so many people, especially somebody like that who can really who can really come up with something great, you know, at the drop of a hat, really, can just disappear, not really make much for a while and just wait until he's inspired and... Mm. and and then go and do it. But maybe music's not at the forefront of his mind constantly. And it's just something that comes to the forefront of his mind. And in that moment, magic is born and um, we get the, the pro- you know, the, the sort of produce. Mm. I mean, it's obviously true that there's a lot of music you hear from like the SoundCloud things. It's reassuring to hear that there's a lot of music that's not that great. 
and it's right. and it's that it's what's the word reassuring at least to see some of a peek behind the curtain that's for every like window licker there is like a hundred hours of good music and then but yeah do you know what i mean it's just it is a process of doing it he's got his own a and r as well yeah i mean maybe he's maybe he plays it to people and i don't know what his his auditioning process is for his own music but i mean yeah man we Mm. none of us write nobody writes great music all the time most 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 of the shit i make is 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 not good. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a you know, a, a vast majority I'd say of the music is not is not good. It's it's just fun in the moment and then I listen back to it and I go, eh, it's not really gonna go anywhere. <laughs> Doesn't go anywhere musically. It's probably not gonna go anywhere in the world and, and I don't love it and I don't feel anything from it. Um, and when I was making it, I wasn't really that inspired. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to make something and I thought maybe inspiration would strike at some point and it didn't. You know, that Leonard Cohen quote, you know, you've got to finish cutting the diamond to see if it really shines. <laughs> that is a good quote. <laughs> I like to, yeah, it's amazing. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to always finish cutting the diamond and, and sometimes I don't finish. Um, very often I don't finish. We can't put people on pedestals really even somebody like Apex, you, you've just got to you've just got to acknowledge that his specific set of skills and understanding, you know, like um, sounds like Taken, um, but you know his 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 like very specific DNA in music is unique to him in a way that part of that is life experience and and where he was born and what it, you know his brain is made of and how we you know or how it functions and. There are people who have spent their whole careers trying to be Aphex Twin. F- fine, but it's like you're never going to be Aphex Twin. Mm. And you can just just enjoy music, enjoy making music. That's all there is to it. That's all he's doing. Yeah. Um, and he's not thinking about those people. So, And they're thinking about him. And I, I think it's just someone can be this brilliant one-off thing um, and thousands of people will try and copy that person. And through copying them, they arrive at their own style. And that's when magic can happen mm. for them. But in that period of being obsessed with that musician and not really being able to um separate them from their music and, and just and just look and just looking at it like it's perfect and everything they must do must be perfect. It's like that is not true for anyone. It's we are all he probably like like you say, you know, he's made he makes a hundred hours of music, uh, and not all of it's good. Just like anyone, I mean, I, I, the thing that's different about him is he's brave enough to put it on SoundCloud because <laughs> that's an incredibly brave thing to do. I've never done that, you know. Just like I've always been so fucking like specific and purposeful about the things I put out, and actually, that's a prison. You know, I'd love to just put out more stuff, and because some of it's good enough to put out. I just don't want to put it out. Mm. Um, but yeah, w- he is a fucking genius, like no doubt about it. And there are people like that who I listen to what they do and I just go, God, I, I've just not even got a clue how I'd ever go about doing that. But we don't have to. We can just mm, we can listen to enjoy it. it. Copy yeah. it badly. So it's the next <laughs> yeah. thing you. Yeah. Just say exactly. that's what I mean, we're always going for. Of course. We're all influenced by, you know, we're all influenced by him. We just, you know, got to 
I think it was just part for him for me he was part of the journey to finding out what it is I wanted to do with my uh, electronic instruments mm. with your computer controlled instruments yeah more, like hand, more hand control yeah electronically controlled hands I don't know I think I have a feeling it's gonna the future of music is I think we're currently limited by our sort of listening environments maybe I think streaming has kind of created a um, a fast economy for music uh, that that may be interrupting the potential in creativity, potentially stopping people from living out ideas, making albums, like having having things that are played in their entirety and appreciated. As- yeah, I think that, and also the capitalistic element of it. And the fact that it's hard to survive as a musician is making it difficult to see creative visions through to the logical conclusion. Um, Because doing that would be a waste of time when all you really need to do to sell records is make the intro 10 seconds, well, sorry, make the intro three seconds and just get straight to the point. You know, there's in every genre, there's, there's shortcuts that are curbing creativity because ultimately when you see it doesn't matter how creative you are you need to make a living and if you want to make music for a living and if you you know you look at the formula and you go and you have to incorporate parts of that formula into your work otherwise you're not going to get airplay that unfortunately like because of streaming we're in a kind of like payola situation where there's ways of of pushing some things to the top of the pile and a lot of great music's being lost, like in the creation process. I mean, is is being lost before it even happens because, you know, people who can't afford potentially incredible people who would otherwise be able to see their creations th- through and um, make something genuinely new don't get the opportunity to do that uh, from all different cultures, especially if you are disadvantaged and and you're you know. So, I think this. I think what potentially is the the future of electronic music is, and I know there's problems with it, but NFTs have a very, they're a very interesting potential avenue to independence. It's not that they themselves are creative, you know, or anything really. I mean, they could just turn out to be an, a, a way for people to make money. Um for, for musicians to make money, but that wouldn't be a bad thing. That mm. would actually open up creativity, I think, rather than stifle it. Because I think part of the problem, I mean, I saw a, a quote, uh, Brian Eno talking about NFTs, saying that it could just turn musicians into capitalists. And I, I, I agree that it has the potential to do that. But I think I have a slightly different perspective on money and music being uh, maybe, I mean, there, been, there was a time when I thought money was uh, only a corrupting factor in music. But I think that, the fact so many musicians struggle so much to to make this their living and 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 truly live and breathe it means that they're limited in what they can do and be accepted with um and therefore their creative vision is limited and we don't get we don't get as wide a variety of music as we could in the major channels so you know if nfts can can help people be as creative as they want to be and still make money, then I think that would be a massive victory for electronic music specifically because 
electronic music is probably the most feverish pursuit of brand new sounds and brand new ideas of any genre. Um, it doesn't tend to stick to formula. It tends to find a way of innovating something brand new almost every few years, uh, which is not like other genres. I just think it's the one that's so... It leads the way creatively, I think, sometimes, you know, in a lot of ways, just because of the nature of the way people think about it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that could be the future of it. There is definitely... It feels that Spotify has got this kind of... It's creating this like even wider, it's like the 1%, it's like that even wider disconnect between successful artists and people who haven't yet broke through. It's like, yeah. it feels like, you know, those are, there's, <clears throat> there's this like sort of rift in the centre and there mm-hmm. the top is drifting away from the bottom, which is really weird. I mean, it is. at the same time that music tools are cheaper than ever, software is either free or like you don't really need mm-hmm. to crack software anymore when there's like no. legit free versions of things and really good yeah, systems, right. blah, blah, blah. But it's just... And they're all undiscernible as well because plugins, they're all undiscernible to most people. Like yeah. if you get a plug-in reverb, like Convolution Reverb or something, or you've got like a... And it's free. The, the difference between that and like something by Lexicon or like... Do you know mm. what I mean? It's hard to quantify. Or, yeah, I mean, most people aren't going to even hear the fucking difference. Democrat, democratization of tools, having a phone that you can make music on which you do and can, is incredible. I suppose it's just also, um, you know, there's something to be said for the commitment that's required. Like, we're talking about yourself when you're like, you got obsessed with style of music and you had logic, yeah. but you needed the mm-hmm. fervour as well. Well, I made, a, I made made like a beat, a, what is it, the Kanye thing, like three beats a day for three summers or whatever, yeah. five beats a day for three summers. It's like, I did that. Yeah. You know, I really did that. Um, I made thousands of pieces of music um in that period and and i still i mean i'm still making pretty you know high mm. rate of of that but it's then how you how do you then get a leg into an industry how do you then become i mean i don't know i don't know people people ask me sometimes like what what would your advice be for somebody starting out it's like i don't honestly know i mean apart from massive amounts of persistence and obsession um it would be hard to give somebody advice of where to go and who to talk to because music is so subjective and, you know, the the avenue that's right for you is going to be the different avenue than what was right for me. But And also the processes now are different and the websites you go to are different. But like you say, democratisation is a good thing. And also a lot of people who wouldn't have otherwise had careers have now got careers because of... And it's fucking great. Um, and it... It's possible that more musicians have made a living now, but actually sustaining a living, probably not. Like, probably less musicians now are able to sustain a living because of the disparity in in how much royalty payment, you know, the, the, the method of royalty. Like, the way they release royalties now is just so different. We're literally being paid less on the dollar than we used to be. And so live is everything and... You know, there's only so many slots at festivals. There's only so many, you know, like, where do you play, you know? Mm. Uh, COVID, like, has fucked everything. So it's it, it's really, really difficult. And I think that's why I think NFTs probably hold the key to, if they can sort the environmental sort of issues out and figure out a way of... Do, I mean, hopefully, you know, Ethereum can 
hurry up and get away from proof of work and then we can get to... I mean, I'm not really hugely knowledgeable about it, but what I do know is that it would be, from what I can gather, there are some technological advances that would need to happen in order to make it sustainable and be something that wasn't impacting the environment at all. I just think it's going to open up a direct method of supporting artists, and I think that's just so important because at the moment we don't have one. I mean, we've got Bandcamp and we've got like things like that, but it's not enough to sort of turn the tide that has just massively gone against us for for so long, I think. The way I've seen labels <clears throat> for most of my career is basically I want to just be able to focus on the music. That's all I want to think about. I don't want to think about anything else at all. Not even, I mean... To some degree, I even kind of took my eye off the ball when it came to my own finances and my own, you know, my actual life because because I was I wanted to just stay on it. But you can't really live like that uh, without being tremendously fucked over. So you've got to, at some point, develop some in- independence and understanding of what your situation is. And I think, unfortunately, the more awake you become about royalty payments and you know how your music is remunerated and you know I was very mentally ill in my 20s so I wasn't really looking at any of it um but the more awake I become the less it makes sense financially and and business wise like and and the less I look at it and go yeah I want to be part of that I'm lucky because I I think I I get left alone to just do what it is I want to do but also you know the NFT thing sort of takes you away from feeling any pressure to make money for someone. So like whatever label you're on, whether it's universal or a indie electronic label, at some, at some stage you feel pressure to like sell records for that label because they've put their trust in you and, and blah, blah, blah. I think getting a, you spend a lot of your life as a composer trying to get away from any influence like that mm. of like feeling obligation to make money for other people. Maybe there's a, a, a collaboration between labels and and the new technology, de- decentralized technology. To to, I mean, you can bet they're going to try and control it. <laughs> so, you know, I was kind of thinking that, like, mm, I'm sure if they feel an opportunity to make money, then yeah, probably. Well, it's like the finan- yeah. the, the financial financial institutions got on Bitcoin quick, didn't they? And mm-hmm. and started, you know, now now Bitcoin starts to mirror the stock market there are so many institutions involved in it and and who knows how decentralized it can stay for how long but the internet was decentralized at some point do you remember that Mm. but i remember i grew up with the internet so i know i remember a time when the internet felt free and didn't feel just like a bunch of apps that keep you within their architecture and stop you from like going anywhere else Mm. felt like there was a genuine like thirst for for new information and it didn't feel lobbied it didn't feel paid for it felt like people were just putting information up and, and being like this is this <laughs> you know and they, and you didn't have to go who funds this website what's like what's their actual motive like <laughs> it's like now it does feel like the internet that i was hoping would like occur hasn't it's been institutionalized, really. Still has the power. I mean, power to connect. It still has, an, and an, 
unfathomable wealth of information. I suppose it's just, can you navigate its poisons effectively enough to get... All that information is going through avenues now, though, that are essentially censored. Things even like, do you remember when LiveLeak was just so, it was fascinating that that existed. And then it got, and then it really, they had to kind of shut it down. But there was a freedom, there was a sort of like, even though there was some fucked up stuff on LiveLeak, there was definitely a a freedom of that like website had a, a kind of anarchy to it. And there's, there's an anarchy desperately missing from the internet now. It doesn't feel free. I think because the internet and social media has such a direct effect on our mental health, that's why I'm interested in it. Because if people feel that they can't express themselves online and they haven't learned to express themselves in person because they've spent so much time online, then they're not able to express themselves at all. I think we're all feeling the collective effect of the internet being corporatized. I think we're, we're feeling how that's changed everything. I mean, it also sounds a little bit like you're also responding to the way that we seem to have lost the art of respectfully disagreeing with one another. Yeah. Like, and there's, there's also a segregation of opinion and thought, which is all social media mm-hmm. by, you know, reality shielding people and echo chambering them. It isn't leading to healthy discourse. And there's sort of... No. Maybe in schools they need to just teach people how to have arguments, you know, and how to make up. So one of the things... How like, to be rejected. Yeah. I think is the biggest thing is how to be rejected and how to deal with that rejection. Uh, not your, all of your ideas are going to be uh, palatable to people. And sometimes, you know, when you're rejected, you have to learn how to, like, take that and, and not become angry. I think people are dealing with rejection really badly on a on a mass scale and it's like turning into a, a war uh, of words but then ultimately like it uh hurts people so i i yeah i agree with you it's it feels it's not just a technological change it's also like a change in a kind of tone a change in tone of the way people receive information and also just the uh the fact that information is going to certain people and not others i don't see articles if they don't line up with my algorithm and shit. So, of course, I'm never going to have a conversation with somebody who disagrees with me. Like, if you're never exposed to disagreement, then when you finally confront it, then you you can't deal with it. And mm. you just end up, you know, feeling offended and, and confused and angry. And, you know, I'm looking for confirmation bias and I didn't get it. And now I'm angry. You know, that, there's that a lot, I think, and... I, I think we are about to move past that, hopefully. I think it's going to reach a critical point, critical mass of just people hating on each other. And at a certain point, you just got to come out the other side and go, no, nah, you know what? The internet's fucking stupid. Let's just hang out. Is this all about your Pitchfork review? Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I... Uh, the less said about that, the better. No, no, no. I, I love getting, I love, I love getting, you know, I love getting shafted in reviews. It's like a, it's like a, should be a sport. <laughs> I think it is for the reviewers, I guess. Like, yeah, no, it is. It's just like, you know, I've got to write like one of these a day, I guess, or possibly more than one. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Fine, you, you got to take How long did you spend writing that? Oh, three years? Well, it's taken me three minutes. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, look, it, it, as long as it... My, my thing with reviews, if it, it, as long as it doesn't, like, discourage someone from finding music that would help them, mm. then I don't care. Mm. Like, I, for me, it's like music is ther- like is literal therapy or it's, well, figurative therapy. So if that's what, that was that was my issue with the, the Pitchfork thing, which I said online, which was the, the whole Sad Boy thing of like the way they were writing about it was going to potentially discourage somebody who could find emotional respite in this thing. You can say anything you want about my music, but don't fuck up my relationship with people who this music could go out to don't like like cool kid my shit do you know what i mean Mm. sort of snide comment your way into discouraging somebody from listening to this because it uh, it's not about oh no i can't have anyone think anything negative about my music it's more like i grew up listening to music that helped me it like helped me it healed me it made me feel good it made me like it made me um think about things deeper deep, you know more deeply and it, like it confronted me sometimes it made me like it made me a better person sometimes i think if you shame people then that's going one too far criticizing music's fine but shaming people is is something else that's that that veers into bullying so mm. you know for 1.0 for that review <laughs> <laughs> You know. Thanks very much. Uh, my pleasure, man. I think we've talked about pretty much everything. We've talked to literally all the questions done. It's just white space in the bottom now. <laughs> That's great. Oh. Yeah. Thanks, James. That gave me some stuff to chew on. Hopefully it did you. I don't envy James having to submit the reviews that are, like, read on a global scale after you've, like, poured your heart out into a piece of music for years on end. I mean, I do realise it's a sort of an intrinsic part of being a successful artist, of course, but I just think that there's a significant part of me that would be like... Fuck off, mate. (laughs) You try making music and tell me how it should be done. You know, and at the end of it, you know, while you're at it, find me two people on Earth who like precisely the same things. I'll point out that this medium is nothing less than 100% subjective in its appeal. So pray tell, what is the point of reading one person's opinion of music? It's a bit like reviewing analogue filters to bring it all back to since, but, you know, or ice cream flavours. Music's too personal. It's too personal. It's intent. It is nothing but personal, as I was saying. So it's just like, what is the point of this? Anyway, it's not really about James Blake. It's just something that really came up. So my hat is doff to you, sir, for stealing yourself and just making music irregardless. Regardless. But of course, as Apex says... We have to be our own worst critics because we do have to progress. That is 
like a, that is a reality. Like there has to be some truth. And I've certainly been on the receiving end of plenty of criticism myself since I have a YouTube channel. <laughs> and there's no harsher critic than a YouTube comment. That's for damn sure. And I get my fair share of comments, a lot positive and some deeply negative. Some just like intensely angry people that just pop out of nowhere and just give you just the rawest intensity of their negative thoughts. And I think the smartest response I've ever seen to that, um, and I doff my cap at Bo Beats for being the one to do so, is like responding with kindness, <laughs> like actual genuine kindness returned back to pure, pure hatred can be completely diffusing in a way that is remarkable. And I've seen that firsthand, in fact, actually with comments that um, were left on his videos. Well, I think it was on my video, but referenced him and he replied with kindness. And there was a man who basically wrote back a few days later to say he was so sorry. He was so upset on that day. He was having a, a complete sort of um, just a dark day mentally and was thankful that we'd replied with kindness rather than becoming angry because, you know, the reality is that if someone's really upset with you or, you know, if someone comes to you with anger, the natural response is to return that anger. We become defensive because it's a defensive method. But, you know, the opposite is actually what diffuses the situation. It's responding with love and kindness. And that's, <laughs> with all that's going on in the world at the moment, feels like the opposite thing to helpful. I don't know. It's very hard to say. <laughs> I think at this point, all I can really talk about are responding to YouTube comments. That's the only thing that I actually have any sort of useful and valuable input on. With regard to music reviews, I'm the jury's out especially ones to do with electronic music. There's something about reading an electronic music, a writer writing about electronic music when they don't make it or like understand the process, it really rubs me the wrong way. I don't know why that is. So thank you for coming with me to my TED Talk about why I'm annoyed about uh, music reviewers. I really haven't had a bad music review, although as I say, I've had plenty of bad YouTube comments. Yeah. What I loved most about James's comments was his unflinching description of his musical process. And that moment where I was like, and perhaps if you saw the video form of this, you know, you can see my face. I was like, wow, like you are really telling me how you write music. And it was exactly what I wanted to hear. It was brilliant. Like no one else has gone into that sort of level of depth. And his process is really interesting. His process is this kind of iterative, self-sampling, metamorphosizing process where he's taking the ball of clay and he's making something and then smashing and making something and then smashing it and making something and then and remaking and remaking the ball of clay in sort of musical terms. Well, it's like in painting, like, you know, like a Rothko or something, you know, where it's like there are many, many layers of paint to a Rothko. It's like layered and layered and layered. And, you know, if you see painters painting initially, there'll be potentially there'll be complete reworkings, you know, on some um, canvases, like they've x-rayed the canvases and there are complete other works underneath, you know, the the sort of master's painting that we all come to know. Um, 
And it's the same thing with his musical process, it seems. That kind of remaking and remaking, I think, is a really interesting use of technology. It's something that digital technology is really good at because it's really possible to take and remake things. And like really, you've got kind of, you can get under the hood of sounds in a way with electronic music in a way that you perhaps can't, you know, with, you certainly can't in a band situation. I mean, yes, you can, you know, rewrite the music, but you can't literally access like the atoms of sound like you can in a DAW or on a synth, you know. And I mean, we've got a long way to go. There's certainly other things that we could be doing, like resynthesis and the ability to kind of literally take sounds and out of their constituent parts that like you could do on a sync. Actually, like, yeah, you could do on a sync clavier. Uh, so maybe it's not such a new concept. It's the idea of taking your own music and sampling it. His uh, Royal Highness Adrian Utley was talking about, um, I watched this, this talk he did and how on Portishead's records they would have dub plates cut of parts and then they would like rub them on the floor and then they would sample the dub plates into the archives so they made their own vinyl records and sampled them in you know absolutely delightful and another form of that kind of like self sort of resampling technique you can do it on many things, like taking things and recording the cassette and then, you know, recording the ambient sound of the cassette player, like a, you know, portable cassette player, playing into a room, playing a cassette of something that you've just recorded. You, know, you can create these kind of things that sound like they've been sampled from the ephemera of the world and life and that they've, they're actually things taken from random bits of material from eons and decades ago but they're actually things that you've just recorded to a tape and you've just played into a room and recorded to make them sound like the kinds of things that you would have taken from those mediums there's so many like wicked techniques to be had in this sort of way so i hope this gives you some thoughts ideas to take for your own process and win some bloody grammys and a mercury prize but remember Nobody writes great music all the time. <laughs> what has he said? A lot of what I write is shit. And that is something that I can identify with definitely. I think anyone who writes music knows exactly what you're talking about there because that's how it is. You don't write great music all the time. You just write music a lot. And the more you write, the better the chance that you will write something great. Um, I've often said, like, I think quantity makes quality. So get writing. Thank you, James. Not least, obviously, for generously giving your two hours of your time but to a relatively obscure podcast. But I also want to thank you personally for your support and encouragement of what I've been doing. Um, sharing out what I do and being encouraging both publicly and personally and being really supportive, is, it means a lot. So thank you, especially from someone like yourself. It means a lot. Like, Christ, it's bonkers. So thank you. Yeah, what a dude. Mr. James Blake is. And then finally, for your reference, uh, the 1979 Best Picture winner was The Deer Hunter. So, no, not not a last-minute riot that you would put on <laughs> every night. Uh, and, yeah, that's pretty much it. I think all that remains is for me to say, if you enjoyed this, consider subscribing and consider hopping on the Good Ship Patreon www.patreon.com forward slash Melodies. You can help 
fund this podcast and help the production of future episodes as well as the YouTube videos that I make. There are loads of other Why We Bleeps. We've talked to lots of other people and by God, we'll talk to more people yet. So subscribe, stay tuned and thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next time.